Welcome back to the Community Online Podcast. This week, we're joined by community pastor Ted Canaris as we continue the series, U+. Remember, you can always find us on Sundays streaming live at communityonline.tv. We hope to see you there. Sometimes when you spend so much time working on something, its impact can be lost on you. It can be kind of like how people who live somewhere beautiful, you know, not Illinois, how they can get used to the view. It just becomes normal to them. They almost don't even notice it anymore. Well, I've had the privilege of working with our team on this U Plus series and facilitating U Plus conversations for a while now. And from day one, we sensed that this could be incredibly transformational for all of you. But what I didn't really expect is just how transformational it would be for me. I had my U Plus conversation several months ago with our founding pastor, Dave Ferguson, and I was surprised by how meaningful it was to have the conversation. In all my years of following Jesus, I honestly had never sat down with another person to discern and create an intentional plan for my discipleship before. It was such a simple, but such a great experience. I left our conversation with a simple plan for how I wanted to grow in my faith over the next 12 months. And one of my goals was to begin to journal every day in a format that I could maintain that would help me keep in step with the Spirit of God in my daily life, as described in Galatians 5.25. I've never kept a daily prayer journal before, and I really felt like it was a step that had been stuck in the back of my mind for a really long time. And this process helped me create a plan to finally take that step, which I'm really excited about. However, as we all well know, while it's so great to have a plan, the most important part of the process is to actually take action. And as we're going to see today, that is the challenge that Jesus leaves us with as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. The whole intention behind this U Plus series is to help us step into the life and life to the full. That's what Jesus came to bring each and every one of us. And we believe that we can find this flourishing life by becoming disciples of Jesus. And as we've said every week, a disciple is someone who hears from God and does what he says. All throughout this series, we've dug into one of Jesus's most important teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, to learn from him about life in the kingdom of God. And today, today we've come to the four-part conclusion of the sermon found in Matthew 7. And I need to warn you, Jesus has some very challenging words for us today. Admittedly, his words at the end of his sermon may make some of us nervous. I mean, he's blunt, he's straightforward, and he speaks with the authority of a king. But if we're truly committed to following him in the ways of his kingdom, we have to take his words to heart, and we have to respond accordingly. We have to listen, and we have to respond. So today, we're going to go a little old school. If you're able, what I want to ask you to do right now is go ahead and stand up. If you're in your kitchen, if you're in your living room, wherever you find yourself, just, just stand with me right now with a readiness to hear as we listen to the words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. 
Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Thank you for standing with us. You can go ahead and take a seat if you haven't done so already. But before we dive into these texts together today, I think it's important that I pause to address the tension that many of us feel when we hear these words by clarifying what Jesus is not doing here and what Jesus is doing here. Sometimes when we read this four-part conclusion, we start worrying about our own salvation. But Jesus' intention here is not to cause everyone to live in some kind of constant state of panic or worry about their salvation. Scripture is consistent and Scripture is clear about what theologians call the assurance of salvation. Basically, it's the idea that our salvation is an eternal gift. It's an eternal gift that we receive when we declare our allegiance to Jesus and we enter into a relationship with Him. When we do this, we're adopted as children of God, as his sons and as his daughters. And there's nothing we can do to change our status for the better or for worse. The scriptures on the screen are just a few examples that reassure us that we are secure in that salvation. Jesus is not, he is not undermining our assurance of salvation. So if that's what Jesus is not doing, What is Jesus doing here? No doubt, Jesus is trying to rattle us a bit. But essentially, Jesus is calling us to genuine discipleship. He's calling us to be people who actually live in the kingdom ways. He's calling us to be people who who hear his words and actually do what he says, because he knows that that is the way to the life that is truly life. I love the way that theologian N.T. Wright characterizes this conclusion. He says, Jesus began his sermon with unqualified tenderness, embracing his blessing those who felt least embraceable. He now concludes his sermon with unqualified toughness, 
warning that his sermon is not intellectual, an intellectual option, a set of suggestions we may take or leave, one philosophy of life among others. No. The warnings make explicit that Jesus believes his person and his teaching are the exclusive way to life. Jesus is challenging us to follow him and to enter the kingdom of God. So let's look more closely at his four-part conclusion. In the first conclusion, Jesus calls us to be among the few who will walk through the narrow gate. So what is this gate? Simply put, it's Jesus himself. In John's gospel, he records Jesus saying this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Jesus is the way. He is the king. Now, entering through the narrow gate is not just about acknowledging that reality. It's, it's about declaring your allegiance to Jesus as king. It's about a radical commitment to, to center your life on him, to actually follow Jesus in the ways of his kingdom. Jesus says that most people, most people won't make that choice. Most people will choose to walk on the road that leads to destruction. Choosing Jesus, choosing the narrow gate requires intentionality. Unfortunately, especially in today's culture of distraction and quick fixes, I think it's easy to just go with the flow when it comes to the most important things in life. Jesus' warning here is that we can't allow the crowd or the path of least resistance to dictate where we go or how we get there. If we really want to walk the path to life to the full, the narrow path, we can't just drift. We can't just let the current of our culture or the pull of approval or the lies of leisure take us wherever they want. Those paths might seem easy. They might seem appealing now. But that wide road always leads to disaster. To enter through the narrow gate is to follow Jesus. And following Jesus takes commitment and it takes intentionality. Scholar Scott McKnight says it well. There is one reason the gate is narrow. It is demanding discipleship. The gate is narrow because it requires a person to turn from sin, to follow Jesus, to do the will of God as taught by Jesus. If you're here today and you realize that you've been cruising with the current of the culture and have not really been following the king in the ways of his kingdom, the good news the good news is that you're never more than just one step away from that narrow path. And that step is repentance. Repentance simply means turning around from the way that you've been walking and beginning to walk in a new and in a better way, in the way of Jesus. May we all heed the warning of Jesus's first conclusion to walk through the narrow gate on the narrow path. May we be disciples who hear from God and do what he says. In the second section of his conclusion, Jesus warns his followers to not be fooled by false prophets. He says, watch out for false prophets. 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. So what is a false prophet? Well, it's someone who claims to be speaking for God, but who is not approved by God to be his spokesman. Now, it could be that the person is sharing false teachings. But here Jesus doesn't focus on what the false prophet is saying. Instead, he focuses on the character of his or her life. The false prophet may be saying all the right words, but none of that matters if there's, if there's something rotten in the core of the person's life. How are we to detect a false prophet? Well, by fruit inspection. Jesus continues, he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Examine the fruit of a person's life, Jesus says, and you will be able to discern whether that person should be trusted as a prophetic leader or teacher. But what specifically is the fruit that we're looking for? Well, it's not success as the world defines success. No, it's the fruit of the kingdom way of life and the kingdom character. A genuine spiritual leader will not only reflect Jesus's words, but also his ways. Jesus wants his disciples to practice discernment with their leaders. Not everyone who uses religious language is speaking for God. Not everyone who has a, a book on the Christian bestsellers list is speaking for God. Not everyone who, who holds a position of Christian leadership is speaking for God. In recent years, we've seen too many examples where people in positions of spiritual authority have misused their influence and misused their power. The pain that has been caused for the people who have been abused in these circumstances is, is crushing. It's, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's completely inexcusable. And let's face it, it's one of the reasons why the church has, has such a tarnished reputation in the world right now. This second conclusion, Jesus is warning us not to be wooed by people whose success and, and charismatic personalities are, are naturally impressive. Instead, we're to examine the fruit of their lives to see if that person is actually following King Jesus in the ways of his kingdom. Remember, true disciples of Jesus hear from God and do what he says. The third conclusion is perhaps the most alarming of all. Jesus says that there are many who will say to him, Lord, Lord, who are not genuinely his followers. Now it's sobering, but we have to recognize that Jesus is not talking about people who have rejected God in this passage. He's talking about people who claim to be his followers, but really aren't. Understandably, people tend to have strong reactions to these words. The cynics, they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, believing that the, the whole church is a fraud because of the hypocrisy among us. While the perfectionists, they go into a tailspin of fear and imposter syndrome, thinking that, that they, they are in fact the frauds, despite all of their best efforts. But the heart of what Jesus is getting at here is that God is not fooled by our pretending or, or our pretense. 
as God himself said in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, the Lord, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The key to understanding this third conclusion is this word evildoers. The word evildoers may be more literally translated to those who practice lawlessness. What Jesus is saying is that there are those who claim to be his followers who never really submitted to his authority at all. They never really surrendered themselves to him as king. They may intellectually believe in him, but they continue to live as lords of their own lives. Their life reveals that they have taken the crown that only belongs to Jesus and and they've placed it on their own heads. The truth is that the relationship that the person and Jesus have was really non-existent in the first place. Maybe it would help to think of it this way. Imagine a man marrying a woman and at the altar, he makes a vow and says, I love you. But after that, nothing in his life reflects that commitment. He never considers his wife's interests when he makes decisions. He spends all of his time pursuing his own hobbies or his own friends. He doesn't lift a finger to help around the house. He shows his wife no affection. He speaks to her never. He spends no time with her. Now, if you were to ask him, do you love her? He might reply, of course I do. I I said so on her wedding day. But the plain reality, the plain reality is that his actions do not validate his words. His words alone can't create a loving and healthy relationship. They're just empty noises without meaning. Jesus is describing a person who claims to love him, but whose life shows no actual evidence of following him. Again, from Scott McKnight. Far too many today are trusting in a one-time decision, but show no marks of discipleship. We are saved by Christ, but Christ saves us into discipleship. Jesus's intention in this passage isn't to frighten his disciples into questioning their salvation. Remember, the assurance of salvation that we discussed earlier. Jesus knows that his disciples, us, are going to mess up. He knows we're going to totally blow it, probably as many times as we get it right. But his love for them and for us will never waver. His grace will never run out. Jesus is issuing a warning in this passage. He's challenging those whose walk doesn't match their talk. His intention in these verses is not to condemn them, but to shake them, to wake them up so that they can repent and become genuine disciples before it's too late. Remember, disciples of Jesus hear from God and do what he says. Now, all of this comes together in Jesus's fourth and final conclusion. It's a parable about building, and through it, Jesus presents a starkly contrasting picture illustrating two different responses to his sermon. One builder hears the words and does what he says, while the other hears but does nothing. 
At first glance, when we read this parable, we might think that the man who built his house on the rock represents Christians, and the man who built his house on the sand represents maybe non-Christians. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Remember, both houses on the surface appear the same. They represent two kinds of people who might call themselves Christians. As Pastor John Stott said, he said, both read the Bible, both go to church, listen to sermons, and buy Christian literature. The reason you can tell the difference between them is that the deep foundations of their lives are hidden from view. The houses may appear the same on the surface, but Jesus says a time will come when the foundation will be revealed. The kind of kingdom life that we've been talking about during the series, the U-plus life, is the kind of life that invests in the foundation. We've been challenging one another to be disciples who hear the words of Jesus and do what he says. And if you build that kind of life, Jesus says, when the storm comes, and it will, you will stand. All four of Jesus's conclusions at the end of his Sermon on the Mount leave us with one burning question. Will we follow Jesus? Not just will we believe in Jesus, not just will we say we love Jesus, but will we follow him? Will we live as his disciples who who hear from God and do what he says? The whole point of this sermon is to call us to a different vision for our lives, a vision of a life that is truly life. It is a life lived in God's kingdom where we join in with God in bringing more of heaven to earth and experiencing the the flourishing life that he came to bring. But to find this life, we have to follow Jesus. We have to hear from him and do what he says. This is the U plus journey that we've been together on over these past 10 weeks. And I want you to know that this journey doesn't end when the series ends. U plus is more than a series. It's it's a vision. It's a vision that God has given us for these next couple of years. We believe that during this season, God is calling us to continue, to continue to challenge one another to live as Jesus's disciples. We'll continue to invite you into U-plus conversations, and and together, we're going to continue to hear from God and do what he says. And as a way to celebrate what God is doing in us and through us, I want to let you know that next week, we're going to wrap up this series with a special U-plus worship experience. During this worship experience, we're going to have an extended time of worship, We'll hear some U-plus testimonies, and we'll also have a special time of commissioning for those of you who are committed to living the U-plus life. We'll also be celebrating baptisms together. If your U-plus journey hasn't yet included taking this important step of, of declaring your allegiance to Jesus by identifying with his life, death, and resurrection and baptism, I want to encourage you to take that step next week and allow yourself to be baptized. You can scan the QR code on the screen to learn more and sign up for baptism. You won't want to miss this U-plus worship experience, so make sure you are right here next week. If you remember at the beginning of our time together, I shared a little bit about how transformative my U-plus conversation was for me. 
one of my next steps as a disciple of Jesus was to start what I'm calling my Galatians 525 journal. It's a daily practice where I pray for my family and for our church, where I check in around my RPMs, my relational, physical, mental, and spiritual health. And I look at the day ahead and I pray for each person that I know I will see that day, asking God to keep me on the narrow path, in step with him, to be a blessing to others. With Dave's help through our U Plus conversation, I committed to taking that step about five months ago. And I've been taking that step every single morning since. It has been just the right spiritual practice for me in this season of life. And I'm so thankful for my U-plus conversation because it helped me identify what God was saying to me and to develop a plan to actually do it, to obey. And as a community, we want to help you take your next step. I wonder, what does God have next for you? Together, we want to live as genuine disciples of Jesus and experience that full and flourishing U-plus life that we were created to live. Together, let's hear from God and actually do what he says.